Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, thanks so much again for coming today. If you're brand new, especially, welcome to Hiawatha. And we're going to continue back up with that today after a couple-week break for Christmas. Uh, in chapter 17 today, and just to remind you where we've uh, been in this book, especially if you're brand new to the Bible or just haven't been here yet for this series, this is the part of the Bible where the stories of the kings start to uh, occur and where they initially occur and they'll kind of spill over into the books of First and Second Kings and Chronicles after this and even after that. But it's a big part of the Old Testament and it starts to shape for us what our expectations should be uh, for the ultimate king of kings who will come in one particular genealogical and kingly line, uh, so not all of them together. Uh, remember that, that Jesus contrasts and compares at different uh, junctures in the Old Testament with different people and things and events. And so uh, David then is one of these principal kings and characters that God uh, especially covenants with and um, says and makes promises to and says that it's through him that the nations will be blessed, that all wrongs will be righted, and that he will send one who will reign forever, not temporarily and partially and imperfectly like David, but perfectly and forever and holistically and cosmically and beautifully referring to, to Jesus Christ. And so that's why these stories are so, so important for us. Um, so in terms of where we are in the story uh, uh, today and where we kind of left off a few weeks ago, David uh, has just been anointed king by Samuel, uh, who the books are named after. He's kind of this prophet figure. And God, ultimately, being the one who identifies David. But there is this lag effect in terms of that becoming public. So Saul is still practically king, even though in God's eyes he isn't anymore. And so from this point forward in the story, we're going to see the overlap of the kingdoms. Not unlike the Old and New Testament overlap during Jesus' earthly ministry in the gospel accounts. Uh, but an overlapping where Saul and David are going to contrast and clash and in spite of Saul's clinging to the kingdom, it's going to get pulled from him and his grasp over and over again until finally David takes his full and rightful seat on the throne. Uh, today we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath, and in one sense this is a story unto itself, but in another sense it's a means to an end to help tell the greater story of David and Saul and how David is the better king and from there, how God's ways are better than man's ways and how David would continue again to shape for us what his distant son, Jesus Christ, would be like. So that's basically where we are. So to summarize um, verses 1 to 37, uh, essentially, uh, we're not going to read this whole thing, uh, so we're not here for dinner. But um, to summarize the first half, and we'll spend most of our time in uh, the, the second half, which is kind of the climax of, of what occurs. So... You may be familiar with this story. Uh, it's a common one uh, for a lot of people. But the Israelites and the Philistines are basically at it again. Uh, lining up for battle at Soko in Judah. Saul and the Israelites are on one hill. The Philistines are on the other hill. And there's this valley in between them. And at one point, a 10-foot tall warrior named Goliath comes out of the Philistine camp wearing bronze scale armor, uh, armed with this huge heavy javelin and a shield, and he challenges the ranks of Israel to a one-on-one -on -one fight, winner take all. And he does this for 40 days and 40 nights, and as you might expect, Saul and the rest of the Israelites are more kind of looking around and elbowing each other um, to be the person to nominate himself um, rather than raise their hand to fight, but no one does, and so the stalemate continues. So enter David, who's probably around 15 at this time. 
uh, who's not on the battle lines because he's too young to be in Israel's army, and so he's back home tending to his family's sheep as a shepherd. His father, Jesse, sends him to battle with food for his older brothers who are serving in the army. But when he's there, he overhears Goliath giving one of his twice-a-day defiances to Israel and their God. And essentially, David asks, who is this guy? Who, what's going on here? Who is this brazen fool that he should talk this way about the armies of the living God? And then he says, I'll do it. I'll fight. And his brothers, in this very like older brother way, look at David and, and classify that as like faux bravery. Like, come on, you're just here to watch, you know? Um, but, it's, but it's not that. He means it. Uh, David's words are legitimate. And others get a sense for that. And they bring him to Saul. So Saul then, after seeing David's size and youthfulness, says, no way. There's no way. And David says, yes way. I've slain lions, I've slain bears with the help of God, protecting my sheep. This wicked giant will be like one of them. And Saul says, okay, cool. Go, the Lord, the Lord be with you. And from there we pick up in verse, in verse 38. So follow along on screen uh, if you'd like. This is an abridged reading, so probably best to follow along here um, on, on screen. Verse 38. Then Saul dressed David In his own tunic, he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried to walk around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. As the Philistine moved closer to him, To attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down in the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand as he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. Abner, the commander of the army, took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him, or Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. All right, so man, it just helps to picture that as a 15-year-old, doesn't it? It's like with his voice still cracking or something, you know, from puberty or whatever. It's like, this guy's like calling his shots and everything happens according to him, calling the shots. He's carrying a head around 
It's just like this, it's just nuts. Um, and it's meant to be nuts. It's meant to be a bit like, this is, I can see a Navy SEAL doing this, you know, or something of the day, but not a kid. Uh, and that's going to become important a little bit uh, later here. So, okay, initial aside, uh, a couple things here. Um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that David and Goliath, as a story, has become a cultural idiom, effectively. I, I think it's recognizable by even the most biblically illiterates uh, among us. Of course, not everybody, but it's, um, I think it's safe to say that that's um, very, very much the case uh, in culture today. Uh, it's synonymous with underdog story, uh, essentially. I don't know if you guys have seen or heard of the movie um, The Boys in the Boat. It's in theaters right now. I have not seen it yet, but I was reading a synopsis about it that used underdog and David and Goliath language. So it's just ubiquitous. It's just everywhere, um, th this type of association with that, with this story essentially is, is how it seeped into um, so much of, of culture and the way we think. And, so, and uh, something I think this is uh, that we identify ourselves with, uh, or maybe a sports team that we uh, cheer for, or someone else that we know, or like some event or something that, was, that we might say, there's a David part of this and a Goliath part of this, and you might just kind of casually refer to it um, that way. Um, but so something we identify ourselves with, at least with David, uh, nobody sees themselves as Goliath. Like, I don't think I've ever heard of that <laughs> once. Um, even though um, everyone has thought less of someone else before, everyone has taunted or teased or despised or bullied or flexed or thought that their way is right and everyone else is wrong, and it's my job to fix it, all the Goliaths out there to fix them, and I'm the David, and I'm coming against everything. It's sort of that kind of like, I can do this, and you know, I'm, I'm, it's me against the world kind of mentality. Everyone's thought that way. Everyone has, uh, in big or small ways. And so we've all been like Goliath a lot more than we think. We just don't tend to naturally do that. And I think that's part of the point. We all like to view ourselves as the hero of our, our own stories or the Bible stories. But there are massive, massive problems with that, especially if taken too far, and we'll get there in a minute. But with that said, there is a biblically faithful way to align ourselves with David here, and that's where I want to start. And so we'll start with what we sometimes call the human side of a passage, just meaning a horizontal uh, uh, kind of place of application almost, where we say, where are we in the story? How are some of the main characters referential to our story uh, or, or to us on, on some level? Um, and when we do that, I think that we see David as a picture of faith. If there's something to emulate here or strive after or simply see as our story as Christians, maybe broadly as human beings, but I'll say specifically as Christians, it's that David is a man of faith. He trusts God through and through. As Hebrews 11 says, this is one of David's greatest legacies and how he takes his seat among the cloud of witnesses as, quote, an ancient commended for his faith who shuts the mouth of lions. Uh, in other words, it's not David's bravery or some moral trait that God rewards. It's his trust or his reliance on him. Uh, in case it isn't obvious, 15-year-old boys don't usually bring down 10-foot-tall giants or grizzly bears or lions. In fact, it never happens. God is the one doing the slaying here, not David. David himself recognizes this in saying to Goliath, Today, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. He is going to hand you to me on a platter. Uh, this reminds me of when uh, Jesus says in places like Mark 5, 
Your faith has made you well when he heals a leper or a cripple or something. It's your faith, your trust in me that has made you well. So the point there is not to flatter and celebrate some pious trait in the one being healed, but to say it's your trust, your simple faith in me, not your works that has made you well. So if Goliath is a symbolic picture of our sin, and he is, at least in part, then this story reminds us that it's our trust in God's saving power that saves us, period. And leaves our sin dead at our feet, period. Uh, verse 47, this, is a, um, this might actually sound familiar to you as something we've already heard, paraphrased a little bit differently, um, but something we've already heard in this series a lot, and something you see all throughout the Old Testament, is something like this. It's not by human strength. It's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. That is, not by our works, for the battle is the Lord's, not yours. So in other words, it's God's to give us on a platter, not ours to earn. Okay, so now here, with that said, so in one sense you could say, looking at the story that way, David is just this emblem of what it means to live a normal Christian life, and that is to be a citizen of belief, to be a person of deep trust in God, to be everything, not 80%, not 90%, not 99%, to be everything, his saving power to be every, literally everything for us. And that's a struggle. It's hard sometimes. It sounds simple and easy. It's not always easy because uh, the bias towards self-trust is so ingrained uh, and wrapped around our DNA, and that's kind of the battle we fight a lot in, in life. Um, but if that's like one angle here, I, I think there's some qualifications and some healthy cautions we need to make. Um, I'll call it here the all-too-common interpretational pitfalls to avoid, like I was hinting at before. Uh, and that is seeing too much of yourself in David or making Goliath a metaphor just for anything in life or maybe our speed to moralize this or conditionalize it and to do, and to do that uh, to death. And then just kind of turning the page and saying that's what it means and we just kind of go on. Uh, a few years ago, I ran across this on one of my social feeds um, where it says, many of you guys have seen this, um, the, if it's hard to read, it says, uh, sometimes God will put a Goliath in your life for you to find the David within you. And clearly, this th meme or thing or whatever is trying to summarize the story. It's, it's commenting, it's saying, this is what 1 Samuel 17 means. We'll read this and we'll say, well, we're like David. And so that means there's these giants in our life. We all have problems and things that are attacking us. And so the point is we must mimic David. And the point is to say God's going to put a Goliath in your life, yikes, uh, to uh, fight yourself. And so apart from that just being absolutely horrifying, like if you think about it, like really God's going to put a Goliath in my life so I might do something about it? Like that's just a horrifying thought about God. That's a horrifying thought about theology. Aside from it being horrifying, and apart from it just being bad news, because it points us to ourselves and not God. You are not good news. I'm not good news. Uh, the, the idea that, that we can flex and slay giants, it's not, good, it's not as good of news as God doing that in love for us. And so apart from being horrifying, apart from being bad news, it's just bad theology. It's bad Bible. Uh, it's a textbook example of how much bias we have toward making the story of God into the story of us. I, I would actually say it's demonic. Uh, the devil would love for you to read the Bible this way. 
Uh, it's, it's like his, it's, it's his M.O. in Genesis 3. It's, it's saying to Adam and Eve, like, did God really say that? If you eat the fruit, you'll become like him. And you can flex and know the difference between good and evil and, uh, and morph yourself into a better version of yourself. It's, it's the lie since the beginning. Um, it's actually kind of a common misnomer is uh, people think that the devil does not want you to read the Bible. It's like, in one sense, he doesn't, of course. But in one sense, he does. He wants you to read it badly. He wants you to read it as though it's about you. Uh, that's his main MO in, in life. And so, um, again, the devil would love for us to do that. It's, so it's demonic teaching. It, it makes much of us and less of Jesus. And that is exactly what he's trying to do in the world. And so um, this stuff might come across your feed and you're like, oh, it's not that threatening. It's not that bad or dangerous. You might take it down wholesale and drink it uh, like a glass of Kool-Aid. Or you might be like skeptical and, but not really classified as that big a deal. But it actually is that bad. It's that bad. Uh, it, it's that bad Bible. And the biggest strike against it, though, actually, is that the Bible never tells us to read Old Testament narratives like this. Ever. You never see it. You never see the Bible read itself this way. The apostles, Jesus himself. Um, this is a man-centered, a human-centered reading of the Bible. A grid we impose over the story that exemplifies us uh, and puts God more in the sideline, is just there if we need him. So what the Bible does do, though, is it connects dots between Old Testament people and events and places and things and Jesus, especially with the person of David. More on that in a minute. The other side, though, to this pitfall, uh, I would say, is conditionalizing or measuring this story in some way moralistically. So it, it would be to say, if I step out of my comfort zone and show God how brave I am, then he will reward me by taking away all my Goliath-sized problems. This, this is also a common way of thinking about this, uh, this story in so many words. Uh, but that in a word or a phrase is legalism. Uh, it, the if-thens should give it away. But God works in grace, not if-thens. Uh, even if you were to talk about faith in a measurable sense and say, if I have enough faith before God, uh, as if there's some po part where it starts to overflow the cup, then God will see that, and then he will take down my giants. Um, it, you know, it, in a spiritual sense, there's some merit to that when Goliath becomes a picture of our sin. But when you make Goliath into a metaphor for just anything, it gets really dangerous and unbiblical and harmful fast. So, if we, like, make Goliath into a metaphor for joblessness or loneliness or sickness or singleness or a troubled marriage or depression, it starts to get really far out in the left field and dangerous really quickly. Um, or think about, like, historically, when I thought about lions this week and David, David, like, being a lion slayer, you know, we could say, well, David slew his lions by faith, but what about the Christians who were thrown into the Roman Colosseum amongst lions in the early years of Christianity and who trusted God as they were devoured in front of taunting crowds? Did they have enough faith? Was God not with them? See, like, if our physical lives and problems become the measuring rod, all of a sudden our if-thens start to slip through our fingers and we're left asking well, what does this passage mean then? What's really going on here? What's the ultimate point, the ultimate trajectory? And the reality is, there's better news here than God will put challenges in your life so you can flex and see how amazing you are. That's, 
just not good news. But the better news is that there's something more than us here. And, you know, God, and God may put challenges in our life, but not to turn us back in on ourselves, but to show us our need for him. And that, I think, is where all of this is really heading, especially when you think about the other characters, um, the, again, the theological trajectory here of how this is pointing to a savior and things like that. So with that as our kind of shift here then, the other way of looking at this is not so much through a human angle, but through a divine one, uh, to see, like, um, I, I've used the image of uh, milk duds before, the candy, or any kind of candy, you pick your favorite candy that has a shell and, like, an inner something else, lolly, lollipops, or what's the one with the, the tootsie, tootsie pop, thank you, yeah. So there's an outer shell, and even the early Christians talk this way, pre-lollipop, how'd they do it? I don't know. But they, they, um, th- there's an outer historical, physical, face value shell to the story but there's an inner allegory, an inner spiritual, uh, they, they called it sensus planure, which is Latin for fuller meaning, a fuller Christ-centered meaning to these stories that came even hundreds of years before Jesus that we have to get to or we're not doing faithful Bible. We're not doing faithful theology. And so this is, this, they were following the example of the apostles or, when, when they did that. So that's kind of what we're doing in this series as well. We always do this here uh, in, in sermons, but especially with narrative like this. The divine side then of the passage, so that horizontal God-facing perspective would be to look at David and Goliath as a picture of not us. So first we'll start with, uh, with this. David, I've already alluded to this. David is a type or a picture of Christ. The Bible says, or I'll say it another way this way. The Bible says Jesus is David's son. It never says you are David's son. Uh, if, if you look at the other characters in the story, I would say we are, we are like Israel and the Philistines on the sidelines, on the mountains, watching all of this happen, not participating. We are unable to fight. We are, in many cases, unwilling to do it. And so you see then when, how this changes the message from be brave like David to we haven't been brave like David, but someone else is being brave for you. Someone else raised his hand and said, I'll fight for them. And then with that as our main framework, all the other details of the story start to fall into place. Like planets around a sun, they start to find their, their gravitas, their orbit, and they start to find their true meaning behind that, that inner nucleus or that, that sun of the, of the solar system. So that the manner by which David slays Goliath teaches us theology as well. The B-level uh, characters or things of the story start to teach us theology as well. And when we look at it that way, a few things stick out. I have just four things I'll read through here. There are more, but four that I think are the biggest things. So first, like David was first clothed in Saul's armor, this is a big part of the story, but then realized he couldn't fight in it because he wasn't used to it. And like he then opts for five smooth stones instead, so does the greater story of the Bible move us from the law of external impressiveness and self-power to the grace of our weakness that rests in God's strength alone, particularly rocks that were harmed and eroded away by water to make them smooth, just like Jesus, who will later be the rock of ages, whose crucifixion and suffering would be our salvation. Also, like David ran to the battle line to fight, so did Christ act quickly when it came to our salvation, or as the Gospel of Mark puts it so often, immediately, not as an afterthought, nor in any way passively. 
Also, like the stone sank deep into Goliath's head, so did the rock of Christ sink deeply into our sin, becoming immersed with it, burying it, even becoming sin on the cross, and then being buried deeply into the heart of the earth to carry our sins far, far away from us. And also then, like David at the end, when he cut off the head of Goliath versus just giving him a paper cut, so did Jesus slay our sin decisively, not partially, with no chance of it ever being resurrected or resuscitated or taking one more single breath. All right, so I'll tack on a couple just comments here, especially to this last one, but also the one about um, the immediacy. Um, and maybe it's on a personal note. Like, for me, like, thinking about Jesus being the main point here, and David is a picture of Jesus, um, and Goliath is a picture of sin. Like, when I, when I sin, um, this matters. Like, the, the question becomes, is as I sin or when I sin, is my sin dead or just partially so? Is it paper-cutted or decapitated? Uh, is, it, is there a chance that it could kind of resuscitate or is it decisively um, you know, uh, dead? Like Paul in Romans 7 when he says as a Christian, I keep doing what I don't know I shouldn't do. I can't stop. The sin is still, it seems like it's alive in me. Is it though? Or is it ultimately dead? And that changes everything. Like, you know, the way we read these stories, either it's going to be about you taking the baton from Jesus and living a great Christian life and having this perfect ascent moralistically, or it's like somehow apart from my struggle with sin, it can, it can actually be dead at my feet at the same time because it's all about Jesus slaying it, not about me. Or another, another thing I'd add here is um, if David is a picture of Jesus, then 1 Samuel 17 teaches us that he's more zealous to slay my sin than I am. He's running to the battlefield uh, in contrast with my walk uh, or my crawl or my going the other way. Like, um, or we've said here a lot before, First John 4 says this, that God loves you more than you love him. That will always be the case. Uh, there, there, there is a, a order of operations here. There's a first and second. There's a greater and lesser. And it's super important to see this, or our theology just gets whacked, whacked. And, and we're so inclined to make it about us in the first place. So we need these stories to not be about us so that we won't, we just, so that we won't make it about us, so we won't struggle, we won't just stumble. And we'll have a God who isn't, giving us just one little example in, the per, in, the, in, the, in a human being in the Old Testament and then saying, do better, or do like this, but saying, my son will come to do this and do it better. Um, and, you know, or the, the, to the question of taking our sin seriously as Christians, that's another big one that we um, should wonder about and ask, you know, uh, how do we take our sin seriously in light of grace? I would say we should. But I'd also say that Jesus takes your sin way more seriously than you do because he died on a cross for it. You have never done that, nor will you ever. And God's not asking you to. You know, and so you can take your sin seriously, safely, uh, in a state of relief and not, no measurement. You can battle underneath the, the greater truth that God takes it way more seriously than you do in love, not to crush you with it, but to save you from it. And in the book of Hebrews, it says uh, to the church, none of you have resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. You ever read that? It's kind of like, it sounds like an insult. You can read that one of two ways. You can say, oh man, he's trying to light a fire under me. 
to actually shed my blood for my sin. Or you can read it as him saying, Jesus shed his blood for your sin. And you haven't. And that's actually kind of the point. God's not asking you to shed your blood for your sin. He shed his blood for you. It's like, what are we talking about? Are we trying to match Jesus? Or is it, is it his zeal, his running to the battle lines out ahead of us, not holding hands with us, in front of us alone, that becomes the ultimate defining factor of our faith? Which is it? You can't have it both ways. Is it all about him or is it a blend? That's kind of the two things. It's actually not all about him or all about us. Usually the battle is, it's all about him or a blend of us and God. That's where, that's where like, the, that's the whole book of Galatians, actually, right there in most of Romans. Uh, that, that, that's the battle. And, is he, and we're constantly being pulled back away from the blend idea to my whole faith is about Jesus fighting without me next to him uh, on my behalf for me in, in love. All right, now there's one more connection I want to make here, and it's, um, I was starting to get there. Uh, and it's kind of counterintuitive, um, to say the least. We've touched on this a little bit in this series, so it might not be a shock to hear this for some of you. But uh, it is that Goliath is also a type of Christ as the champion who is slain in connection with Israel's deliverance. So the idea here is that David doesn't suffer, at least in the ultimate way, by dying. And there's actually a difference between him and Christ, you could say if you're overlaying this story onto the, the, the passion narratives of Jesus. But the second David, or Jesus, would one day save us from our Goliath by way of his death. And that's where Goliath gives us a whisper of how the, the next David would save us in a much greater way, by way of his own suffering. Not just um, fighting and staying alive, but fighting by way of dying and then saving. Th- those are different, right? Pastor Peter actually preached about this a few months ago in Psalm 9, if you were here from this, where it says in verse 0, this psalm is to be sung to the tune of the death of the son, which can be translated death of the champion or the dueler, which has led many to speculate that David wrote this psalm after he slew Goliath. Uh, Goliath. But dueler is interesting, is interesting word too. If you think about it, um, Goliath, not just David, stood in the gap between two warring peoples, uh, the Israelites and the Philistines, just like Jesus would stand in the gap between us and God. And it would make sense then that Jesus would take on the ultimate David role, but also the ultimate Goliath role, because he became like those he was going to save. The son champion became like us, God's enemies, to die in their place. And not only this, uh, but a lot of people think that Golgotha, which means place of the skull, the hill that Jesus would later die on, is a possible, even, even likely place where David brought Goliath's head and buried it, uh, as recounted in verse 54. Uh, and etymologically, it's actually pretty fascinating. Golgotha sounds a lot like Goliath of Gath, which, again, if true, further illustrates how Jesus not only serves as the second David who slays the Goliath of our sin, but he does so by associating with our sin, by becoming like Goliath, by dying as the skull, the slain champion, the ultimate version of, oh, how the mighty have fallen, so that we with our own Goliath tendencies might be washed, forgiven, passed over by the wrath of God, and given, and given eternal life. 
And so my, my encouragement uh, for you guys in this would be, and this is something I would encourage you to apply elsewhere to uh, in the Bible, is any type of feeling of this story is gross, this story bothers me, this, I mean, if we played this, if we had a movie of this, it would be for sure rated R. I mean, it wouldn't be like a question. Is this PG-13 or whatever? For sure rated R. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's super awful and visceral. And uh, if they showed everything, uh, it would be an eye-closing, uh, probably, type experience, unless you guys like watching that stuff. Uh, the epitome of gore. If you think, like, this is the epitome of gore, I don't like the thought of a vulture picking off flesh from a carcass of a human being. I could probably just go, go without that. Um, any thought like that, when you read this story, needs to be applied to Christ. Because the cross was all of those things at a much higher level than what we're reading about here with Goliath. And so to the question of, do you know how much you're loved? Well, I would say, read about Goliath and think, Jesus willingly subjected himself to that for me. That's how much I'm loved. See, fighting and suffering are technically different things, right? As are winning and losing. Jesus took on both for you. He won by way of losing. He was the King David, but by way of also becoming Goliath. He fought for us by way of suffering. We can't miss this. You could say it's the secret sauce of good Bible interpretation. It's the deeper magic that Jesus fulfills and takes on the brighter and the darker parts of the story, so we're not left with this impulse to do something with it ourselves and to try and resolve it or, or quench it or... Follow the example of the hero. But like the Israelites and the Philistines on the sides of the valley, we watch, we stand in awe that someone else raised his hand for us, even us. We see that someone else fights our battles and we come to terms with a gospel that's backwards. The strongest doesn't win. The tortoise beats the hare so that we turn away from our strength and our goodness and embrace our weakness and limitations and we run to Jesus, the only one who's truly good. And that, in the end, is how we trample our sin underneath. It's by clinging to the only one who can truly save us and the only one who does and willingly shares his victory with us in the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and story uh, for what it means in light of the gospel um, and for how it shapes our, our view of you in, in small, um, shadowy, foggy, but still very intentional ways. Uh, we see whispers of your name, uh, of a king who would come and save us with immediacy, not waiting for us to get our act together and to cooperate with him, but who would immediately, in, with one-way love, come and slay the giants, the only giants that can really slay us, which is the, the giants of sin and death and separation from you. That's way worse than Goliath in this story, and that's the point. Um, so thank you so much, God, for, for reminding us of this, uh, and I, I just continue to pray for myself and everyone here that you would unclench our fists from us and from 
the idea that we're only loved if we do something or if we believe enough or if we have enough faith or if we show God our bravery and our mettle and prove our mettle, like then God will only respond or love, like unclench our fists from that way of thinking, living, reading the Bible, and just moralizing the heck out of things that you never intended uh, in, in for us to do with your word. Um, help us instead to hear the voice of our true shepherd, Jesus. Um, may it drown out the voice of the serpent, the devil, who would love us to read stories like this as though they were about our inner David. Um, we just, yeah, in the, resist that and reject it. Uh, in the name and for the power and purpose of Jesus Christ, we reject that uh, and ask instead for your story to be actually yours. Um, and not some monstrous hybrid of you plus a little bit of our inner David goodness. So God bless us as we respond here in song and communion and pray this in your name. Amen.